you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to the book of Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. We're talking about what is the right thing to do. We've been on this journey since the 1st of January. And we have learned that finding out what is the right thing to do is sometimes crystal clear and sometimes not so much. And we find that God's Word gives us a number of principles to help us to determine what is the right thing to do in a given situation. One of the principles that we have learned came from the story about a man named Ehud. You remember Ehud, the left-handed man who, uh, who killed a very, very big king? You remember that story? And you remember that in that story there was so much detail more detail is in that story than in any other story in the book of Judges and arguably more detail in that story than any other passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. A lot of detail. Why? We came to the conclusion that perhaps uh, that passage is teaching us that in order to determine what is right, you need to get all the details that you can get all the information you can. But now here's a question on the heels of that principle. How do you get all the details you need. How do you get all the information you need to enable you to determine what is right in a given situation? Well, Judges chapter 6 uh, is a story about a man named Gideon. He's one of the, the uh, more popular, more well-known judges or deliverers of the book of Judges. And Judges chapter 6 finds the Israelites having disobeyed God again and God has delivered them over into the hands of the Midianites, and the Midianites are torturing the Israelites. So much so that the Israelites, many of them have had to flee their homes. They're living in caves. They're living in secrecy. When they think nobody's around, they will sneak outside the caves, and they will try to plow up a garden and raise some crops. But the Midianites are watching that. They have spies watching them. And so right about the time the crops are are about to harvest, the Midianites will come in and burn the whole field so that there's no food. The Midianites are torturing the Israelites. So they cry out to God, and then in verse 11, which is where we'll pick up, we find that God raises up Gideon. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when, he, when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us. And put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan, that is my family, is the weakest in Manasseh, in the tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Now skip down to verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan 
and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abysrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. And Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. A few weeks ago, we watched the college football championship. On television. Some of you may remember it. The national championship occurred in Pasadena, California at the Rose Bowl and it pitted the Crimson Tide of Alabama against the Longhorns of Texas. And sports experts were divided as to who they thought would prevail in that game. Alabama had the Heisman Trophy winner. His name is uh, Mark Ingram, a running back. On the other hand, Texas had a quarterback. His name was Colt McCoy. He, was the, he is the, the uh, winningest quarterback in the history of college football. Both teams, uh, extremely talented football players, and they were pitted against each other in the national championship. As it turned out, Alabama won the game 37-21. to But the score... For those of you who watched the game, you know that when, this, when the game ended, a lot of people were wondering, what if? What if what happened to Colt McCoy, the Texas quarterback, had not happened? Would the game have turned out differently, or at least would it have been a much closer score? You see, Colt McCoy, the first time the Texas offense went out onto the field, in his fifth snap, he took the football and he went to a left option to option the ball to one of his running backs to his left. And when he did, uh, Marcel Darius, the defensive end of the Texas Long of the uh, Alabama Crimson Tide, came around the side and hit McCoy in the side shoulder. And McCoy went down. It was a hit that McCoy had taken hundreds of times in his football career, and he would always pop right back up and go into the huddle, call another play, and take the snap and move the Longhorns forward. But not this time. This time when he got up, the cameras saw him clutching his right arm. In fact, we now know that when he was hit, something happened in his shoulder, and when he got up, he said his, left, his right arm felt like he had been sleeping on it all night. You ever slept on your arm all night and you wake up and you can't feel that thing because there's no circulation going in there? You ever done that? And you, you reach over and you try to move it and you can't move it and you pinch it and you can't feel it 
and you realize it's gone to sleep, and so you try, to, you try to wiggle it around until the blood circulates in there and how tingly it gets as the blood goes down your arm. You ever had that feeling? Colt McCoy said that his arm felt like he'd slept on it all night, except when he got up and tried to wiggle his arm, he didn't feel the tingling of the blood going down through there, through his arm. He had a dead arm. They had to take him out. And, you know, they never put him back in the game. It was the national championship. It was the game that he had primed his whole career for, and yet they took him out. He went into a practice corridor of the field there in the stadium there in Pasadena, Pasadena, California. His uh, personal trainer and his dad, Colt McCoy's dad, came down, and they were trying to help him in a practice round throw the football because he's an excellent passer. He could barely clutch the football. And when he, when he managed to throw the ball, he had to use his whole body to force the ball out, and he only got it about seven yards, and it was wobbly at that. And so he never got back in the game. And so we're left to wonder. We'll never know. What would have happened had Colt McCoy been able to play the whole game? They interviewed him after the game. If you know anything about him, you know that he's a devout Christian. He's kind of like Tim Tebow of Florida. In fact, there was a... Uh, an infomercial that was produced online, some of you may have seen, of Tim Tebow and Colt McCoy talking about their Christian faith and the influence that Christ has had on their lives and how for them, although football was important, their relationship with Christ was more important. Very impressive young man, Colt McCoy. And he said this. He said, Never in my life would I imagine standing on the sidelines in that game. I worked my entire life and I prepared my entire life to be put on a stage like that and to be given the opportunity. I worked so hard, but I'll never question God. I'll never ask why. Three or four years ago, I saw Dr. James Dobson interviewed by Larry King. I don't really remember uh, the different issues they discussed, I'm sure they had something to do with contemporary moral issues in America and, and, and Dr. Dobson's take on those moral issues. But in the context of that interview, one thing I do remember is that Larry King at some point asked him, he, says, he said, have you ever questioned God? And I remember that James Dobson answered immediately, without even hesitating, he said, never. I've never questioned God and I never will question God. I was surprised by that. I was surprised by his response, and I was surprised by Colt McCoy's response. Is it ever right to question God? There are a lot of folks who, who, who believe, a lot of Christians believe, that, that uh, Colt McCoy's response and James Dobson's answer to Larry King's question was the noble Christian answer to give. And there is some biblical basis for that stance, for instance, it's in that wide and deep chapter, Romans chapter 9. Have you ever read Romans chapter 9? You have to be careful going into that chapter. If you ever decide to read chapter 9 of Romans, take your life preserver because you'll drown if you're not careful. I've tried it myself. I've, I've not yet been able to swim across it. I almost drowned three times reading it. Romans chapter 9 is that wonderful chapter where Paul talks about God's selection of Israel to be the vessel of his blessing, in particular the vessel of the blessing of his only son. 
And evidently there was someone in the Roman congregation who was questioning why would God select Israel of all nations? And Paul came back with a a, a strong rebuke of whoever that person was and, and he said, look, God can show mercy on whomever he wants to show mercy and he can show grace to whoever he wants to show grace. He can even withhold it from whoever he wants to. And so God can choose to do whatever he wants to with whomever he wants to. And the imaginary objector there in Romans, Paul says, now somebody might say, well, who who can resist God then? And, And why would he judge us if we can't resist him? And Paul says this to this person. He says in Romans chapter 9, verse 20, he says, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Paul issues a stern rebuke of the person who's asking the question. And from that that, uh, imaginary dialogue between Paul and somebody in the Roman church, one could easily conclude that it is absolutely off limits to ever question God. And perhaps it is. Except that, from Genesis to Revelation, some of the greatest heroes of our faith did question God. Abraham questioned God, do you remember it? He was somewhere around 90 or so. God says to him, he says, well, Abraham, you're going to have a son. You and your wife, Sarah, you're going to have a son in your old age. And uh, as it turned out, it wasn't going to be that year or the year after that or the year after that. In fact, it wasn't until Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 that God came back and reminded them that they were going to have a son. And Abraham said, you know, Abraham and Sarah both said, well, are you telling me we're going to have children in our old age? How in the world is that going to happen? He questioned that. If you were 100 years old and God told you you were going to have children, would you not have a question somewhere? Hello? Moses had a question for God. Moses had spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt, the the second 40 years of his life in the wilderness of Arabia where he got married, got a job tending his father-in-law's sheep. He was up on the side of a mountain. He saw a bush that was burning, but but the fire was not consuming the bush. Out of the bush, God spoke. God said, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, why me? And who are you? I don't even know your name. If I go to the people and I say, God told me I we're going to lead you out of here, and they say, well, who is God? I don't even know what to tell them. Who are you? So Moses was a man who questioned. David was a man, even though he's, he's we look back, and the, the, the Jewish people look back on their history at David as being the greatest of all their kings, even greater than his son Solomon. David was a man who in his psalms, those wonderful, glorious psalms, there are times when in his anguish he questions God. Psalm 74. Why have you rejected us, O God? Why does your anger smolder psalm 10 why O lord do you stand so far away from us psalm 22 my god my god why have you forsaken us 
Now, granted, most of his psalms were filled with worship and praise and glorious uh, words for the Lord. But there were those moments when he questioned God. One of my favorite books in the Old Testament is one of those little 12 books. They're 12 small little prophet books. They call them minor prophets because of their size, not because of their significance. At the end of the Old Testament, one of them is the book of Habakkuk. I call him Chewbacca. I love Habakkuk because of his honesty. It's three chapters. Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk starts talking to God and he's looking around at all the wickedness that's going on around him and he, and he lifts his voice up to God and he says, God, where are you? Why do you remain silent when wickedness is just rampant? Why don't you say something? And so God responds to him and he says, well, he said, Habakkuk, you're exactly right. Things are bad, but I have a plan, and I'll tell you what the plan is. He says, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, another word for them. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans down in here and use them to destroy Judah and punish the people for their sin. Well, that answered Habakkuk's question, but then Habakkuk got to thinking, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait a minute. The Chaldeans, they're worse than we are. So he comes back to God and he says, God, Oh, Lord, you're the righteous one. You can't kill us with them. How could you remain silent when your people are destroyed by a people more wicked than your people are? And finally, God said to him, he says, Habakkuk, you're just going to have to take it by faith. The just shall live by faith. But my point here is that you have one hero of faith after another after another who dares to question God. And, and keep in mind, their questions were not questions with an end goal of abandoning God. Their questions were questions with an end goal of learning more about what God was doing in their lives. Trying to understand God's ways. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, Simon Peter questioned God. Paul, even though he made that astounding statement in Romans chapter 9, when it came down to a thorn in his flesh, he questioned God. Our Lord on the cross quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if you take those in consideration, and we could lift up some more, Jeremiah questioned God, why do the rich prosper? Why do the wicked prosper, he said, and, and, and the godly people suffer? He said that to God in one, in one chapter. Isaiah questioned God. If you take all those into consideration, then we'd have to come to the conclusion that maybe it's okay to question God, maybe as long as we're careful, because after all, you know, if you go to question God, he's going to strike you with lightning, right? Well, not necessarily. God is not a lightning type of God. Now, he controls the lightning. He created the lightning, but he's a gracious God. Let me tell you two reasons why I believe that it's okay to question even God, as strange as that might sound. First of all, because God, now keep in mind, God is unlimited, yes? He's unlimited in his knowledge, unlimited in his wisdom, unlimited in his love, mercy, justice, righteousness, you name it. He's unlimited. There are no bounds to his character, his being. On the other hand, he created us, and we're limited. 
Now, right there on the edge of my index finger, you can't see it. I know you can't see it. In fact, I can't see it, but I know it's there. There's a little speck of dust. It's right there. Now, that speck of dust, let's say that that little speck of dust represents the limits of Jimmy Orr's everything. Which, by the way, that speck of dust may be a little gracious, uh, uh, but, but we'll just leave it at that. that. That speck of dust represents everything I am, all of my emotions, all of my knowledge, all of what wisdom I have, everything I have, all my abilities, right there encompassed in that little speck of dust. Now, in contrast to that, you have the unlimited wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's say that in contrast to my little speck of dust, the, the knowledge and wisdom of God is as big as, no, not this building, that's too small, uh, Palmetto. Now think about that. You see that little speck of dust there? I know you can't see it, but you're thinking about it. It's right there. That's me and you. God created us with that much limitedness compared to his unlimitedness. Now, uh, for God to do that, he knew or had to have known that, that we in our limitedness would want to know about things that are outside our limits, that we would have questions about those things because a lot of the things that happen to us, the explanations for those things are outside the confines of our own abilities and wisdom and knowledge. So if God created us with limitedness, he knew that we'd have questions. And so I believe he's okay with it. But I'm going to tell you something else. God is big enough to handle your questions. Listen, there's not a question I can come up with that surprises God. There's not a question I can ask him that catches him off guard. There's not a question. I, listen, God is big enough to handle it. We, we serve a very secure God. And so I believe, and you don't have to agree with me, but I believe that God is okay with our questions. I believe he was okay with Moses saying, look, I don't even know who you are. Who are you? I believe he was okay with David and said, oh, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe he was okay with Habakkuk when Habakkuk said, why are you so quiet? I believe he was okay with it. And that's why I also believe that he was okay with Gideon here. Because when God came to Gideon and said, Gideon, you're a mighty warrior of the Lord, what was Gideon's response? His response was to give questions to God. In fact, there are two primary questions that he gives them. And, and, and from this passage, we glean, I think, some principles about determining what is the right thing to do. And in particular, about how to get more information so that we can determine what is right. You see, we need more information in a lot of cases in order to determine what is right. How do we get that information? Well, one of the ways we get that information is we must ask questions. So to, de to determine what is right, a person must be willing to ask questions. And it's okay to ask God questions. It's okay to ask other people questions. Questions are okay. Gideon had questions. But here's what's important, I think. God doesn't reprimand Gideon for asking them. Do you hear that? Gideon asked some pretty stern questions 
And God doesn't reprimand him for the asking. Please don't discount that fact. Listen, if, 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 you want, if you want to make a case that God will not put up with our questions, then you'd have to go in here and look for some, some way in which he reprimanded Gideon. Don't you raise your voice to me. Don't you ask a question to me. You don't know who I am. He doesn't do that, though. He didn't do that. He encountered Gideon and his questions graciously, and he answered them graciously. To know the right thing to do, I believe we have to be willing to pull a Gideon and ask some questions. But the second thing I want you to get, though, is this. Although God does not guarantee answers to our questions, he will provide direction. One thing I've noticed about questions, I think God is fine with us asking questions, but there are two things we have to remember. Number one, some questions he will answer and some he won't. Gideon asked his first question, it's in verse 13, and God, if, when you read the, the, God's response, he doesn't answer the question. Now God will do that to you a lot of times. Listen to this. Verse 13, but sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our father told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us. That's pretty strong language. He's abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Here's the Lord's response. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian. Now that's not an answer to his question. Did you see that? God did not answer Gideon's questions and sometimes God will not answer your questions now that doesn't mean he, that, he, that he doesn't like you ask him as I said earlier he's fine with us asking questions but he's not obligated in any way to answer any question and sometimes he won't but then again Gideon asked a second question and this time God does answer him. Verse 15, but Lord, Gideon said, how can I save Israel? My clan, that is family, is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. And in this weakest clan, I am the weakest in the family. And the Lord said, here's how. I will be with you. And you will strike down the Midianites together, you and I. You see, here's what I'm having to learn. I'm having to learn it the hard way. Please forgive me for this. I'm having to learn this the hard way. God can give me all the answers to all of my questions, and I'll just tell you, I have a bunch of them. But every time God gives me an answer, it gives birth to about 10 more questions. And so God could have answered Gideon's, all of Gideon's questions, but in answering this second question, he says this, look, how are you going to do it? I will go with you, and you and I will do it together. And folks, let me tell you, I may get a lot of answers to my questions, but they won't do for me what that statement does for me. When God says to me, Jimmy, I'm not going to answer your question, but I'll go with you, and you and I will handle this issue together. Now, that helps me. So although God will not guarantee answers to all of our questions, he will provide directions. Number three. In order to determine what is right, not only must we be willing to ask questions, but we must be willing to pray until God comes through. One of the problems in my prayer life 
is I don't persevere all the way through sometimes. It's not that God forgets what I've asked for to begin with and therefore I need to repeat it for him. No, no, no. He, he remembers. In fact, he knew it before I ever asked for it. But there are times when I need to persevere in prayer and co to continue to persist in prayer until somehow, someway, God comes through. James chapter 5, verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Gideon comes to God. God says, I'm going I'm to use you to, to uh, defeat the Midianites, and, and uh, I'm, I've sent you. Have I not sent you? I have sent you. And so Gideon says, well, I believe you've sent me, but uh, I just want to be sure. Can I be sure? I'm going to take a blanket, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to spread it out over the threshing floor overnight, and the next morning, if, if the blanket is wet and the ground is dry, then I will know that you've sent me. Now, I don't recommend we do this. But that's what Gideon did. And God did not reprimand him for this test. The next morning, sure enough, the blanket was soaking wet. The ground was dry. He got it up and he, he, he twisted that thing together and, 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 and squeezed all the water out of a whole bowl full. And then he got to thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is what ought to normally happen. You put a blanket out, it's going to soak up the water. Gosh. God, can I ask you to do one more thing? He's stepping on thin ice now. Can I ask you to do one more thing? Sure. I'm going to put the blanket back out again. This time, let the blanket be dry and the ground be wet. Now, that's something right there. And God said, okay. He didn't reprimand him. What's he doing? He's struggling with God. He's working with God. He's, he's, he's praying with God. He's conversing with God until he can work it through. The next morning he picks up the blanket and it is as dry as if he just took it out of the dryer and the ground soaking wet. And the Bible says then he took his men and he went in the power of the Lord. What is, what is all that, that fleece guard, uh, blanket stuff? What does it tell? It tells us that we are to persevere with God. Continue in our prayer with God until God comes through. Until he brings us to the place where we can move forward how do you know the right thing to do one of the ways to learn to, do, to, to determine the right thing is to get all the information you can well how do you get all the information you can how do you get all the details you can well you ask questions are you willing to ask questions and you pray and you don't stop praying until God comes through and he will he will be with you and he will direct you through whatever it is you are facing. But now let me, ask, let me add just one addendum. As you're willing to pray and willing to question, you also must be willing to be part of the solution. You can read this chapter again. Gideon could have gotten all of his questions answered, and he, he could have had the blanket work out just like it did, just like he was asking God, all of that stuff. But it wasn't until he told his men, come on, guys, let's go, that the right thing was done. Sometimes when we're praying to God and we're looking for answers and looking for solutions, God's going to give them to us, but only upon the condition that we are committed to be part of the solution. See, a lot of people want answers, but they don't want to be a part of the solution. 
You know what that person is? A person who does wrong. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that you put up with us. You don't have to. You've never had to. But you do. Lord, we are grateful that you do. Lord, thank you for this time together. Lord, perhaps there's somebody in this congregation who has never invited you into their hearts. Somebody who has never had the experience of saying, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. There was a young lady in the earlier service who came down, gave her life to Christ. Is there somebody in this service? Is there somebody here who needs to be saved and you know it? Maybe you fought it. Lord, maybe there's someone in here who's been saved, but there's some decision you're calling them to make. They haven't made it yet. Maybe today's the day. Lord, help us with the information you've given us to do what's right. In Jesus' name, amen.